All right, this is Fundraising Radio, and today as a guest speaker, we have Doug Lorenzen, partner at Moore Venture Partners. And in this episode, we're going to touch on to many topics, fundraising for funds, uh, what sort of government programs should startups apply right now during coronavirus, and how to use virtual lawyers, on-demand lawyers. So, Doug, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Moore Venture Partners. Great. Thanks, Constantine. appreciate you having me on. Um, so, yeah, I'm actually a relative newbie to the venture world. Two years in, I've been a partner at More Venture Partners. Uh, prior to that, it has been about 15 years as an entrepreneur and founder. So I was on that side of the table for quite a few years and then just made the shift to an adventure investor uh, over the last couple of years. And so feel very fortunate to be a part of the More Venture Partners team. And More Venture Partners, they're based in San Diego. And Terry Moore, he's been a 20-year veteran to the San Diego scene. I was very well connected with a lot of other venture funds between LA and San Francisco. And, and their unique kind of value proposition as a fund is that they serve these underserved markets, you know, whether it's the Midwest or San Diego or even LA. Uh, so places outside of Silicon Valley. Um, but we do also co-invest and syndicate with Silicon Valley investors. So what we try to do is uh, help companies fill out the rest of their rounds. Maybe they have a lead or some momentum on the first part of their seed or series A, uh, we can help them get to that next stage. So I was actually introduced to Terry through uh, Steve Beck, who's a great guy, uh, early investor in Baidu. Um, and you know, I just expressed interest in getting into the venture world. And for anyone out there that wants to get into that world, uh, just make sure to surround yourself with great advocates you know that know what your interests are um, i would definitely recommend being an entrepreneur for a while proving <laughs> yourself out there uh, but when you want to make the shift um, it's been great and to be on that side of the table um, so i'm up in la i actually cover deal flow in the la territory i'm in san diego a lot because the fund mm -hmm. is based down there uh, but yeah we have an interesting portfolio we focus a lot uh, on the quantified self, um, we have a company called Vessel Health, which is doing at-home testing for health and wellness, but actually COVID-19 testing as well. Um, you know, and then we go all the way to drone defense, which a company called White Fox, which uh, can take drones out of the sky that are flying into restricted airspace. Um, oh, nice. And then other other companies like you know even cancer immunotherapy. So it, kind of across the board, we you know we'll we'll touch on. You know, SaaS companies, general tech companies, but also because of the San Diego proximity, uh, there's actually quite a bit in life sciences as well. Uh, but yeah, I feel very, very privileged to be a part of Terry's team and with that fund. That's really interesting. So before we jump into the investing part and fundraising part, let's talk a little bit about government programs that U.S. government is offering right now for uh, companies suffering from coronavirus. Um, I think our call was rescheduled like three times because you were always busy with something and the last call you were scheduled because you were helping one of your portfolio companies apply for PPP loans. And I forgot what that means. Is it pay, payroll paycheck program? Uh, payroll, yeah, payroll protection program payroll yeah, protection is what program. Was, was rolled out. Um, and, you know, the first tranche of liquidity from the government was tapped out almost right away. And it looks like at this point uh, where we are today, we're April 23rd, 
it uh, looks like we'll get you know about another 300 billion or so in additional liquidity mm -hmm. um, so my my suggestion to founders is get applications in as quickly as you possibly can on the ppp loan process now if you bank a bank of america or a chase it's going to be a little more difficult because the volume that they deal with i recommend going to a smaller bank that has a history of writing sba small business associates the sba product loans um, if they have a line into the SBA and they have relationships there, I've just found that that works a lot better. Uh, one of our portfolio companies, we worked with um, First Bank, and First Bank was great because they had everything very organized and had a direct line there. Um, I don't want to dog on the big banks. I actually <laughs> use Chase and B of A for most of my banking. Uh, and I think just because of how many customers they have, the process has been really slow. Um, so I would definitely suggest anyone out there put in the application right away if you do work with a big bank. But I would also go to like a first bank or a smaller um, maybe merchant bank that does business with the SBA and then ask them, call them up, ask them if they you know, do this service. You'll have to open up a checking or savings account with them, uh, but then they'll go through the application process with you. You'll probably get funded faster. The other thing I uh, make sure to do is, you know, there's the EIDL, which is the disaster loan program. And that's, it's not forgivable. So you will have to pay it back, but you have upwards of 20 year term lengths. You have probably around 3.75% interest and they're great, great terms. And so just go to the EIDL loan, uh, just Google that, you'll see it. It's also through the SBA. I uh, get an application in for that because uh, you can get uh, much more. You can get six months of operating expenses there, uh, which can be significant and really help you through some of these slow times, especially if you're a company that's been impacted directly. So if you're food services or in the entertainment space, uh, you'll really get prioritized there for an EIDL as well. Got it. That's pretty helpful. Uh, I'll try to include all those links in the description of the episode. So check it out. Uh, Next, I would like to touch on to legal stuff. So I'm trying to bring many lawyers to this podcast because many startup founders actually suffer a lot with the legal aspects of business. And during our pre-interview call, you mentioned virtual counsel. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like an on-demand virtual lawyer. Can you dig into that a little bit deeper? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, virtual counsel, they're, they're actually a service and they connect right into Slack. So there's a dedicated Slack channel that we have. And I found that they're very fair with billing. You know, they'll bill five, 10 minutes at a time if they can turn around a question quickly. But a lot of time, you know, the questions that these founders have in the earlier stages of company formation, a lot of them are pretty rudimentary. I mean, you, you You'll definitely just start by Googling it, uh, which mm -hmm. I would say that first, like Google the information and just learn as much as you can. Now, we're, we're not attorneys. We need to rely on experts. And so don't make a foolish decision thinking that whatever you Googled out there is the complete answer. But I would suggest make sure you educate yourself as much as possible before you move into conversations with attorneys. And that might be, you know, on a founder's agreement, equity agreement, options agreement. Um, you know, these are all agreements that you can read out there. There's templates that are available that you can download for free and just read through it and try to become as familiarized with the language as you can first. Um, once you've gone through that exercise, then you can lean on a professional attorney uh, that can get you through the across the finish line. 
And I've used, you know, DLA Piper and the big firms, and they're fantastic, especially for the more complicated agreements. But if you just need a basic either, you know, ag agreement on, say, uh, an equity founder share, whatever, options agreement, you still can use something like this virtual council. Um, and again, the way that they work is they just kind of, they integrate directly into Slack. We have a channel that's open. We fire questions and it's all public. So the whole team can see what's happening in the legal channel there. Uh, the billing's reasonable and they turn around their results pretty quickly. Um, again, I, I do still hold some complicated uh, and maybe high value uh, agreements for you know someone like a DLA Piper. But uh, when it comes to the day-to-day -day, uh, work, that just kind of adds up. You don't need to pay six or seven hundred an hour for that. You can get it with a group like you know Virtual Council there. So definitely check it out, and we can throw a link in the show notes as well for founders to see how to use them. Absolutely, we'll definitely do that. And you've mentioned stock options, uh, and that's a really important topic for for any early stage founder who wants to find a co-founder. What do you think are the reasonable terms for for this sort of agreement? Uh, what's the normal uh, vesting period that the founders should expect to, to get or to give out? Yeah, yeah. Um, so first, you know, I, I would bifurcate the, the, that question a little bit. So we can first say start on the founders agreements um, and then we can touch on the options agreements as sure. far as how to use that to stay you know, cash efficient. So the founders agreements, um, I would always recommend a four-year vesting period for the founders as well, you know, and, you know, it's always a little bit dicey to try to cut up equity in the beginning and, but no matter what, everyone should be on a four-year vesting schedule. I would also recommend to have a respective colleague. Let's say there's two co-founders. Those two co-founders, I believe, should both agree to have a respected colleague as a third member on the founding board of directors. And I think they have to tell that third member to hold accountable, um, you know, the performance of each of the founders and moving forward. So there's some independent accountability on the board. And what that would allow too is that if there was ever someone who really slacked off, they took a different job. Um, you know, you don't want them kind of rest investing. You know, <laughs> you want them you know, actively mm -hmm. working, but that right. third board member could have really the voting power to make sure if there was a problematic co-founder, they would be taken uh, off of the cap table, you know, vest whatever shares they vested up until that point. Um, but they would have to be removed. And this is a really tough situation, but I've seen oh, it yeah. over and over again to where you have maybe three co-founders, two end up just performing great. And then one other person, maybe they get sick or maybe it's even situation that they can't control. Um, but it's not fair to the company for them to have equal share, let's just say, of the equity. So you have to have some kind of accountability, I think, on the board and welcome that accountability um, early on in the process. So there's some kind of out for the company to get that person off the cap table. Uh, and it's tough, though. You, you have to talk about these hard conversations early on. You don't want to avoid them. So you have to go through mm -hmm. these scenarios where, you know, say, it's three co-founders. They sit down around the table. They say, OK, here's the equity division that we think is fair. Uh, maybe one person is bringing all the seed capital to the table, so they get a little bit of bump, you know, in equity for uh, that value that they're bringing. Um, maybe the, you know, the engineers and the business managers, I think they tend to underestimate each other sometimes, you know, just how difficult <laughs> it is to, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's that constant tension, you know. 
I'm a finance guy. I've just raised money. I'm not an engineer, but over the years, I've definitely learned to fully appreciate and respect the value that a just great engineer brings to a founding team. Uh, but anyway, you know, sit around the table to have an honest conversation and, and, but bring up every scenario you could possibly imagine as far as how things can go sideways. So talk about someone getting sick, talk about someone finding maybe another job they're more passionate about. And they're just kind of, you know, checking in every day on, on the company, but they're not fully engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I think, you know, everyone would agree that it makes sense to have that independent board member that could make that hard decision if someone isn't pulling their weight. So I think it's just good to, to be transparent early on. Uh, but then, you know, four year vesting, one year cliff, I think is still reasonable, even if you're a founder. Uh, you should be totally confident to have that vesting schedule because you think you're just going to bring it every day and uh, and come to work well. So, yeah, that covers that. Do you have any, any questions on that side? I can also move into the options agreements if you like. Let's actually I have a question about the board member that's going to make the tough decisions. The third guy who's making the, the final decision, uh, who has the final vote. How How do you find it? How do you what percentage of the company should you give out to him if he or she is not a very active player in the company? Yeah, no, typically uh, I've seen it as someone who has brought capital also to the deal. So they have a vested mm-hmm. interest and they have their own risk at play, you know. So you, the thing you have to be very careful about with this is that, you know, there's no really preference towards one of the founders. And, I, and sometimes that's difficult to find. Uh, if someone's bringing in the money, maybe that's a relationship that someone connected. And if so, they're going to be more partial towards the relationship that's deeper as opposed to, to the other co-founder. Um, so you, you have to have full agreement. You can't do this if the two co-founders don't say and fully agree that this person has the capacity to be impartial. So you have to be very careful about that. If you don't have an individual like that, don't use this idea. I would just say get on a vesting schedule. Um, set things up and then have some kind of uh, process to where your warnings are given to have someone removed or some kind of legal framework is done. And this is where, you know, a great attorney, you you can lean on an attorney to have um, some parts of the uh, founders agreement um, have some conditions, you know, so to where if work isn't performed within a certain amount of time or if certain warnings are given to a founding member because the of mm-hmm. non-performance then you know those shares are recaptured you know and maybe into the option pool or into the the, the treasury so you know this is something that is never easy there's no simple way forward and then i think the best rule here is just to have full transparency and sit down together as co-founders and go through every possible crappy situation that's going to come up again, which would be sickness or someone slacking off or someone even finding a, a position that they are enjoying more. Go right down you know, like those 10, 15, 20 different situations, talk through them together and say, you know, if we found ourselves in this situation, what do we think is fair? And you could even take the, that summary and then sit down with an attorney and say, hey, here's the conditions that we think would be fair to pull back shares if someone isn't performing well. And then you know get those agreements drafted. So. That's really important. So uh, here we actually would like to avoid <laughs> stock options, and I think we're getting too much into the legal side. I love it, but I want to focus more on the fundraising side because you know that the show is called Fundraising Radio for a good reason. So let's talk about more ventures. Uh, yeah. What do you personally like to see on the pitch decks? What do you think are the three must-have points on the pitch deck? 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, a good question. Um, yeah, I would say very early, tell me about the problem and the solution in the pitch deck. You know, tell me what you do. I think a lot of founders, sometimes they bury their company mission and this problem and solution slide deeper. And early on, they might be talking about something they're excited about, but I don't have any context. So for me, you know, it just feels just a, a little bit con confused. Um, so I would say, number one, you know, tell me early about the problem and solution and be very clear about what you're doing. And I know that that's you hear that over and over again as a founder, but it's really <laughs> important to define what problem you're solving, you know, what it is that you're solving. I think a lot of times we, we, we get distracted, things get complicated, and we just lose sight of that very clear you know, problem and solution proposition that we're going out there to solve. So, um, yeah, I would say be clear on that early on in the deck. Um, number two, I would probably say, you know, focus on what makes you an attractive deal. And, you know, if you're, if you're a highly accomplished team, you know, great, put that early on in the deck, really focus on that. Uh, maybe it's intellectual property, you know, that other companies just wish they had and you have it. Um, that's fantastic. So put that early on. I think sometimes you know, there's these differentiating factors that companies have these values and they don't actually stated early on you know they don't flex that muscle early on mm. and so again along with the problem and solution early in the deck got definitely bring that to the top you know there's no perfect design to a deck if you know team doesn't necessarily have to go it, towards the end of the deck that could be very early on if you feel just really great about how stacked and accomplished your team is and then um yeah i think number three would probably be that you know, VCs see a lot of pitch decks. And so the more compelling the story, the better. Uh, try to, I would say, lay out the deck, almost almost like a movie script, you know, and visualize mm -hmm. each slide. Like, get, if you can, try to take the investor, you know, through a story, even a story they can visualize. Maybe you talk about a character, uh, a case study, you know, something to where, again, you're, you're actually telling a story and walking them through uh, kind of this journey uh, for one you know it's it's just more entertaining again these pitch decks if you're reading 15 a day can become you know just kind of actually yeah. you know boring at points uh -huh. so the storytelling piece can be a really creative way to keep the attention of an investor and then also better communicate uh, what it is that your company does those are Great points. And actually, you mentioned that the, the last thing that you mentioned. I think it's pretty important. And I want to hear talk to a little bit about creativity of founders. So you're uh, working at the fund. And I imagine that tons and tons of founders are trying to reach out to you. What do you think was the most creative way a founder reached out to you? Yeah. Um, I think it was actually through they, a founder did research on one of my companies that I was a co-founder of early on, they actually reached out to my old co-founder because uh, it was nice. easier to get in, in touch with him because he was operating this company. And he just said very honestly, look, you know, I'm, you know, I, I believe that, you know, Doug would be a great contact of mine. What was your experience working with him and how do you 
best give me advice to connect with him. And so I just thought it was really bold yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and create a creative way to get in contact with me. And my, the old co-founder, he, he appreciated it because he remembered when he and I back in the day, you know, would just hustle together and try to do whatever we could to get investors on the line and raise money. <laughs> and so I think he and I both just respected the hustle and I mean, full disclosure, I think the company was a little bit early for where we wanted to invest, but I've stayed in touch with this individual and he's doing a great job and I could definitely see making an investment once they hit a certain milestone. And I was able to at least give him some advice on you know, how to get to the next checkpoint. And it's been really great. So we've built a great relationship, but I just appreciated how thoughtful he was to think about going through the right channels to actually eventually get to me. Um, and it was a, a nice way to make him stand out from the pack. So that was great. Right. That's a pretty great way of reaching out to an investor. I like it. So let's talk about more common ways that you think other founders should do the same thing. Should they all try to hear your previous co-founders or uh, try some common uh, points of contact? Or what do you think is the best way to reach out to investors? Yeah, I mean, investors nowadays, their networks very much in these um, early, you know, accelerator groups. Uh, and I think they're, they're, there's pretty well designed ways to get in front of a lot of investors and share your story. Um, you know, at least with some of our portfolio, portfolio companies in San Diego, uh, we use Nextcubed, uh, which is NEX3. It's a uh, accelerator that has helped quite a few companies in the life sciences and technology space. So uh, I really respect that team and I hear a lot from them about what's been going on and what have they been hearing. Uh, It's just like kind of another filter level that happens before we get Mm -hmm. deals that has kind of passed their certain criteria. So I think it it makes sense to uh, definitely reach out to accelerators, align yourself with those. There are so many ones now that are specialized to a certain sector. So if you're mm-hmm. a di- health diagnostics or if you're an e-commerce SaaS company, uh, there's usually ones that are very specific to the niche that you're in. And if so, the investors then that are connected to that group are going to have uh, kind of a comfort level for that niche. So I think these these different markets are starting to organize more and more as far as the funding contacts that you'll get. So I I would look into that wherever you live, try to find something that's also local to you. So you can be in the office, go to office hours, talk to the advisors. Uh, There's a lot of wealth of information there because a lot of the deal flow we get are from referrals from trusted sources that either at these accelerators or incubators. And we know that they've already gone through the diligence process with this team. So by the time it's referred to us, we actually have a high confidence level around the deal. Mm-hmm. So that would be my advice, I think, as a first start of where you uh, you want to look what's around you. I'm a, as, a, as a member of a Venture Studio, I'm a big fan of incubators, accelerators and everything similar because I think it's just a great starting point. Uh, so I totally agree with you here. But let's move on to our last question, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I like to ask this to every uh, speaker of mine, and it's the question about what first three steps a founder should take to get the first check from an investor. Yeah. um, Yeah, this is also somewhat specific to whatever kind of company you're building. Um, Now, because it is so 
relatively cheap to spin up a company. I mean, you just, you know, spin up an right. AWS, it's then, you know, there's a lot of off the shelf software you could even use for whatever you're a- attacking. Um, and nowadays, if you can just get some initial sales traction, then that is actually a really important variable. You know, five, six years ago, it was a lot easier to raise without, you know, with being pre-revenue. If you can be post-revenue nowadays, that's a huge differentiator. And even if it's, you know, a few thousand bucks a month, five or 10 grand a month in recurring revenue, um, as long as your ratios look good, you know, you can show that your cost to acquire a customer it, and the unit economics are strong, then it's more about the ratios and your ability to scale whatever channel you're acquiring customers by than your total revenue. So you don't have to be doing 60, 70, 80 grand in monthly recurring revenue. Uh, but if your ratios are strong and it shows that we can throw a f- little more fuel on the fire, then that's an exciting point. That's kind of that mm-hmm. inflection point where investors love to jump in. And no, that that might be difficult because in order to get to that point, you know, you have to have your systems in place. You have to have some budget to put into marketing to at least get those initial customers. Right. But you have to quality control everything. So I know founders are probably like, well, that sounds almost impossible because I need that for <laughs> seed capital. And that's where, you know, the friends and family around is important. You know, if you put a lot of work, maybe moonlighting this thing and trying to get it up and running, uh, hopefully you have enough progress to show a friends and family um, member who can you know, seed your initial round and get you to that next point where you can be post revenue. And I would also say, don't try to make the product perfect. You know, if you can just get it to a point to where you know, you are still pleasing your customer. People are happy with the product. You can always uh, shine it up and polish it up later. Uh, I would just say, you know, try to get it to a point where you can get through that friends and family round, get some revenue, show that your ratios are good. And then at that point, you know, it's going to be much, much easier to raise from a proper venture investor or family office at that point. Awesome. That's great advice. Absolutely agree with that. And revenue, uh, I would usually work with the early stage companies as well. And yeah, revenue is the most, the key thing in every startup, I think. So uh, thanks, Doug, a lot for coming up, for taking your time to participate in fundraising radio. Big thanks to you. And before I wrap it up completely, I want to say a big thank you to the major support of fundraising radio, which is me <laughs> and a few of my supporters who are uh, having the paid memberships. And to support me, you can go to Human IPO. I'm the first of uh, 10 people to actually do that. You can buy my time and sell it later on when I become super famous and cool. So um, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Doug, for coming up and for sharing your experience and knowledge in the field. Absolutely loved it. A lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, Constantine. Best of luck. Thank you.